Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike. And Ian. And as usual, we are rereading the favorite book series, Aubrey Matron. Ian, tell us where we were last week and where we're headed this week. Well, Mike, last week we were reflecting on the sudden death of Captain Pomfret of the Pomone, dead suspected suicide, very strongly suspected suicide, mm-hmm. I think. And some of the sailors had taken to see that as an omen of, of bad luck for the squadron. Killick had been pretty sure, though, that the squadron would be protected by these two very lucky items in the possession of Stephen, namely a unicorn horn and a hand of glory, although neither of them is really those things. Jack, meanwhile, had found a new master's mate, a young fellow by the name of John Daniel, to replace Mr. Wantage, who had been presumed murdered in Funchal, yet more death. And naval intelligence, we learned, had been busy trying to cut off loans to Adriatic ports that were on building French ships and hoping that the workers there were going to burn the ships on account of not being paid. With all of that happening in the background, Killick accidentally, you might say fatefully, broke Stephen's narwhal horn slash unicorn horn during a dinner with Mr. Wright, the engineer. Mm. So it, it, it was a bad week last week for preserved Killick. This week, then, we're still close with the Pomone. She's still unreliable. And we're still battling ill omens. The Hand of Glory is going to disappear. Mm. There's a duel between the surprises officers in the offing. And foreign ships on the horizon are moving to take the weather gauge, but with a curiously unfamiliar flag in view. Hmm. Oh, it sounds like quite a week. I like this chapter. Yeah, let's go. Well, we start with a much smaller squadron. Surprise, Pomone, and Ringle, just the three of them, sail out of Mahan Harbor. Briseis, the Rainbow, and Ganymede have been sent off to protect the Eastern trade. And Dover, we remember, is still escorting the Indiamen home. So Pomone, with its new captain, its disgruntled first lieutenant, and another new second lieutenant is overpressed with sail set forward, barely returns its salute to the battery as they're leaving the harbor, and that only thanks to the zeal of the aged gunner and his mates, and very nearly misses stays brushing against the rocks as they're leaving. And, and Jack Ooh. is you know, kind of watching it, wondering, am I ever going to be able to make use of Pomone's heavy broadside in the Adriatic? He was thinking, you know, I'm going to send these other ships because I've got the big firepower here, but I don't know if it's ever going to come into play. Right. Now, uh, we've had these situations before, and we've tended to kind of roll our eyes because quite often there's a captain who's there to be a bit of a patsy character for us who's incompetent or wicked or, you know, thoughtless. But actually, on this occasion, the captain of this feckless ship, Captain Vaux, seems to be on Jack's side. He's not pleased with the performance of the Pomone. He wants to be, in his words, a fighting machine as efficient as the surprise. And since he's reasonably wealthy, he's happy to pay for powder from his own pocket. So he requests permission to fire off a few rounds. Jack Aubrey, of course, grants the request. And we have the din. We have the smell of powder, usually something that lifts the spirits. But it does nothing to lift the surprise spirits. And nor yet does a dinner of fresh Minorcan beef and grog lift their spirits. Mike, I think they said it was two pounds per man 
of mid can be right yeah I, I can't imagine <laughs> i like my beef but that, that's going to hang heavy on the digestion which is maybe something we're going to come back to later in the chapter anyhow we're we're left with gloom and despondency gloom for the misfortune that killick had brought upon the ship and on the squadron gloom from the shattering of this precious narwhal horn taking all the joy from them because they see this as a sign that their ship is down on her luck no matter how expertly repaired the narwhal horn might be and lots of old hands muttering something about virginity and maidenhood here doesn't doesn't bode very well does it mike no no (laughs) jeez well, and, and, you know, the surprise is not happy and the Pomones are not happy either. You know, their captain has them at great gun exercises morning, noon and night and stops grog for any of the gun crews with the least trifling mistake. So like you say, this this captain may be a man after Jack Aubrey's heart here. Yeah. And because there's a lot of ship to ship visitation, they had learned of the surprises, misfortune, which everybody had seen as kind of the squadron's good luck now halfway destroyed here. Yeah. Well, the surprise's new Marine captain, Hobden, has a long-legged, rangy, limping yellow dog, O'Brien tells us, named Naseby. And, and Ian, you'll have to tell us a little bit more about Naseby. This was the new name for me. But yeah, O'Brien calls him a friendly young creature, somewhat given to theft. And, you know, everybody else is down, but Naseby's the exception. He loves gunpowder smoke, and he revels in the Pomone's constant gunfire here. Ow, he, one thing he does not like is Hobden's German flute playing. Oh, my Good gosh. Talk. Good dog. Tell me, I know we've got a Marine officer playing the German flute. Boy, this is O'Brien's pulling out all the stops here. This is like yeah. a, part of the greatest hits here. So when Hobden is playing the the German flute, Naseby, who's you know kind of familiarized himself with the ship, finds himself welcomed at the galley's smoking circle. You know, and this is uh, and and uh, I, I love it because uh, Brian had said when when Hobden practiced the abomination, Naseby would go there. So, oh boy, we're even getting the you know the Leviticus kind of uh, language around this. Well, Paul, you know Paul Skeeting welcomes Naseby with a bit of cake, and she's talking about how the doctors have been stamping up and down in a horrid passion as she gives Naseby the cake. She says, "Well, at least it wasn't you." Now. Killing, working tirelessly in pursuit of forgiveness, comes through the door. He's got this huge pile of freshly washed and ironed shirts. And, and, you know, he's been very timid because, you know, nobody calls him Mr. Killick or Sir or treats him with deference anymore after this incident with the horn. But he can't help himself. He he wants to know what's up with the doctors. And uh, Paul says, well, they're, you know, really mad about the hand of glory. You know, Killick, the one that you said was going to make us all rich, worth its weight in, you know, guinea gold here. Well, she says, some villain or villains drew off the double refined spirits of wine, which had preserved it, and they've been gradually replacing that with water, and now it's turned all gamey and rancid here. So, the, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Ian, I think you mentioned to me earlier when we were talking about this chapter, you know, I can't imagine the guy drinking that wine, but... <laughs> no. now, yeah, especially as it, you know, got more gamey and bloody and rotten. Never oh. mind. Yeah. Well, the doctor's have put it out on the deck to dry. 
hoping that they were going to draw the tendons and then wire the bones together. So they're pretty upset that, you know, this thing, they don't have it, the well-preserved specimen they did, but they're hoping they can salvage something out of it. But in the meantime, Ian Naseby, the dog. So tell me a little bit. I thought that's an interesting <laughs> name, but I, I had no context for it. Oh, uh, it, it, it's a great name. Familiar to lots of people who can remember their English history from school. Naseby's a village in Northamptonshire. It's about half an hour from where I'm sitting now. It was the site of one of the major battles, probably the last major battle of the English Civil War. Oliver Cromwell's new model army defeating King Charles I's Royalist army in 1645, making it pretty much inevitable that the Royalists were going to lose, which in turn led to the execution of the king in 1640 and to Britain being ruled as a protectorate, you might say as a republic, between mm. 1653 and 1658. Now, so far, so familiar from at least my school history lessons. But what caught my eye and makes this at least a small to medium-sized Easter egg is that the lords of the manor of the village of Naseby back in that time in the early 19th century were the Purcell family, an Irish family who by marriage had become Fitzgeralds. And the Fitzgeralds, some of us might remember, is the Anglo-Irish aristocratic family one of whose number was known to Stephen Maturin in the real world, Edward Fitzgerald, uh, one of the Protestant members of the Irish Uprising, uh, been on the side of emancipation and had died of his wounds in Newgate Prison in Dublin. Wow. So there's a little Fitzgerald link there for us to for us to treasure. But meanwhile, Mike, I, I don't think Fitzgeraldism is anywhere near on being on Stephen's mind here. He's got other things to deal with. He is. He's been, you know, really busy, Ian. You know, there have been many injuries from the Pramones exercises, and Surprise has had, uh, you know, a really unexpected set of cases of boils. And and Stephen says, surprisingly like the Aleppo button. And Ian, this Ooh. Aleppo button, can you tell us anything about that? What is the Aleppo button? Well, for, it, it sounds like kind of charming and harmless. Oh, I've got a little touch of Aleppo button. Oh, you know, a bit of ointment yeah. on that. It, it's, it's pretty grim. It's also called the Aleppo evil. It's a form of cutaneous leishmaniasis, a parasitical condition. Um, the parasite is usually transmitted by the bite of a sand flea, and the uh, infestation causes boils and skin lesions that resemble leprosy. And Ooh. even today, it is one of those tropical diseases that are neglected. And it seems like the sailors could easily have seen the this Aleppo button outbreak as being yet another unlucky uh, ill omen. Yeah, you know, we've had abomination earlier with the with the uh, you know with the German flute, and here we've got an outbreak of boils. You know, this this is sounding like a, a you know an Old Testament plague kind of thing here. So we're yeah, this this is not good. Well, when the doctors finally get a break, you know, they get back to checking on their hand and all they find is the board that they had it set up on and a big bloody paw print next to that board. So that now they weren't happy before. I suspect they're really not happy now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Stephen heads off straight away to try and intervene here. He finds the Marine Lieutenant in the gunroom fingering his unlucky flute. Oh, yeah. Anytime I sit in the gunroom fingering my unlucky flute, I know that it's going to be a bad day. As this, this is while two other members of the, the gunroom are playing backgammon. Stephen confronts Hobden. 
says, your dog has stolen my preserved ham. You need to give the dog over to me so I can give him an emetic. I can make him throw up. He needs to do this before it's too late, before the hand is completely destroyed by the dog's processes, or before things get so far advanced that Stephen has to open up the dog. Hobden's pushing back very strongly on this, clearly doesn't know where he stands with the doctor. He says, nonsense. It was probably the ship's cat. You know, you can't prove that it was my dog. Stephen takes him to the galley, shows the paw print, like the clue at the scene of the crime. And I, I love this little uh, dialogue now between um, Hobden and Naseby. <laughs> Hobden turns to the dog and says, you never stole anything, did you, Naseby? Naseby, says the text, was a clever dog. He could find a hair and do all sorts of things like counting up to eight bells and opening a latch door, but he could not lie. Perfectly aware of the accusation, he drooped ears and body, licked his lips and confessed total guilt. <laughs> a great bit of dog writing there, Mike. <laughs> I do love that. I absolutely love it. You know, we've always said that you know, O'Brien, kind of like Charles Dickens, has this incredible skill of bringing secondary characters to life. I love like, even Naseby has yeah. great personality here. So Stephen repeats the options to Hobden here, either an immediate emetic or the knife. Hobden is still not having it. It was your own silly fault for leaving it about, cried Hobden. And now things turn ugly. You shall not touch my dog, you pragmatical bastard. Will you stand by those words, sir? Asked Stephen after a short pause, his head cocked to one side. Until my dying day, said Hobden, rather too loud. Stephen left the room, smiling. All right, we, we all know Stephen of old, and we all know the meaning of the challenge from many previous episodes in the canon. And O'Brien didn't need to mention Stephen Maturin's reptilian stare because we're all filling it in for him. Um, it's it's a, a real cold moment here, especially Stephen smiling. Is that because he's feeling self-destructive or is he thinks that he, he knows his man and this guy's all bluster and he's going to subdue? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty chilling. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. It sent shivers up my arms. When I read this, I thought, oh, oh boy, he is. Hobden has stepped in it now. Captain, you don't know what you just put yourself in for. Well, yeah. sure enough, Stephen goes straight on deck finds uh, Second Lieutenant Summers, and Summers is looking up at the beauty of the head sails in the brilliant sun. Mm. Stephen says, text writes, Mr. Summers, he said, I beg pardon for interrupting you. A glorious sight indeed. But I have had a disagreement with Captain Hobden, who used and stood by a very blackguardly insult made in public in the galley itself, for heaven's sake. May I beg you to be my second? And yeah, just like you say, and sure enough, Stephen is calling this guy out. And Summer says, of course you may, my dear matron. How very much I regret it. I shall wait upon him at once. And, I, you know, this is, I'd gotten shivers before. Now I'm just kind of frozen reading this and all the death in this book so far, all the ill omens, you know, here's Stephen, you know, still grieving Diana. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm thinking back in the canon, all the times people have been in similar situations have flung themselves into these potentially deathly conflicts. Yeah. And the likelihood that an actual duel, what we know about Stephen, is probably going to result in Hobden's death. And who knows, Stephen charged under the Articles of War, right. um, you know, 
any any way this goes, any of a dozen ways this could go, it certainly pretends more horribly bad luck for the surprise and the squadron, it seems to me. Yeah. Now, this could be about to spin out of control, but fortunately, a couple of sensible heads start to step in here. The first sensible head is Lieutenant Harding, who goes and visits Jack Aubrey in his cabin, interrupting him to say, I have some awkward, pressing things to tell. And Jack leads him to a spot where there might be some privacy. And Harding lays out for Jack what's been going on between Maturin and Hobden and talks about how the superstitious seamen have reacted to the horn and perhaps even more to the hand of glory as the surest possible luck and thereby setting up, you know, a clear pattern of antagonism probably against Hobden. Jack thanks him for the intelligence. Sends for Hobden, who comes to see him immediately and says, basically, you should withdraw the insult. He's very calm, very kind of jollies him along. So look, you just need to withdraw. Here's your moment to apologize. Let the doctor retrieve the hand or you're leaving the ship at Malta. You've got five minutes to decide because dogs digest things quickly. Anybody, he says, in the heat of the moment can blurt out a blaggardly expression. And by the way, Jack Aubrey knows at first hand that that can happen because he's done it. But he says... A man worth his groat knows he must unsay it and pushes in his direction pen and paper for a written apology if he finds that that's going to work better for him. So yay for Jack Aubrey here. Yeah, absolutely yay for Jack Aubrey. And as you said, Hardy, I guess, you know, Hardy was probably one of those guys playing chess over there in the gun room yeah. and heard this whole thing. Good for I him. I um, and I know nobody wants to be an informer, but well done. Well, the scene turns and we've got Jacob and Stephen sharpening their instruments. And I'm thinking, oh my God, are they getting ready to cut open the dog or Hobden or I don't know. But they're talking as they sharpen about the evening with Mr. Wright and the, the music that, you know, uh, how that had gone. And Jacob says, you know, he hopes that he really didn't bore Wright with all his language examples, but he's been talking about these curious Benny Mazab people that he lived with. And he says, well, you know what? There weren't only the Muslim heretics there that I talked about. There were actually also Jewish heretics, Cainites, descendants of Abel's brother Cain. And the initiates, the, the Cainite initiates, still bear the mark of Cain. He says, but they do so discreetly because of the, as he says, vulgar prejudices against Cain. Uh, Mm. Jacob says that this mark forms the strongest bond imaginable, stronger and of much greater antiquity than the Freemasons. So, you know, this was this was interesting to me, you know, kind of in the midst of all this scene with the dog and the hand, you know, we're back. And and I can't help but think that O'Brien is you know sticking another little here. Put a pin in this. Yeah. Here's another little secret society going on in here. Because I'm I'm thinking back Cain and Abel. This is Genesis. Yeah. It's the first book of the, the Hebrew Torah, the Christian Bible. You know, it's the Adam and Eve story. These are their first two sons. It's even in the Muslim Quran. You know, yeah. so Cain and Abel are the world's first children, sons of, of Eve and Adam. And both of them give an offering to God. Uh, God likes the younger brothers, the shepherd Abel's, better than the older brothers, the farmer Cain's. Cain isn't pleased with that, so he takes Abel out into a field and kills him. So we've got, you know, the first sons, we've got the first murder in the Bible, and, you know, we've got this, uh, the the source of this thing, you know, God 
says to Cain, you know, where is Abel? And he says, you know, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So we've heard that phrase many times. And then God condemns Cain to be a restless wanderer, no, no longer able to work the land. The land isn't going to produce for him. And he puts a conspicuous mark on him so that no one will kill Cain and cut his punishment short. Uh, but Cain, you know, wanders the land, has a son named Enoch, builds a city named after Enoch. We, you know, and we get, you know, there's just all kinds of interpretations on this story. But what we know is that we don't need more death in this book. No. Here's you know, the first murder as if, you know, boom, just a, you know, Brian to put it right up in our face again. But we should, as we said, stick a pin in this secret society of Cainites to add to our Freemasons and Carbonari. Yeah, really, really fascinating. <laughs> now, to, to go along with Sethians and all the other kind of little right. bits of sects of the different ways that we divide up society. Anyhow, they've been sitting debating this and Hobden bursts in. And thank heavens it's only taken a few paragraphs to have this really, really unsettling situation brought to a head like this. Hans Stephen, his written apology, and his dog, you are very good, sir, cried Stephen, starting up and shaking his hand. Do not fear for Naseby. These are very simple operations, and I would not hurt him for the world. Of course he wouldn't. Of course. So glad that so somebody else is learning the world of Stephen Matron and his love for animals. Yeah. Anyhow, we get straight to it. The, the emetic is administered. Naseby, to coin a phrase, is as sick as a dog. Almost <laughs> everything of the, the hand is gone except for the bones. And Stephen's very phlegmatic about this. It's okay, we'll boil this thing, we'll clean the bones up, we'll wire them together even more hand-like, he says, thereby to comfort the crew. And before the end of the last dog watch, the newly wired hand is ready and groups of sailors have one minute each to view it before going back in line to wait their turn to see it again. Mike, there's nothing so close to popery as queuing up to see a relic and then going to the back of the queue again. Pretty amazing, right? I love it. Anyway, ne never mind the fact that, you know, we, we, we can mock them at a distance. They take it very, very seriously. It was universally agreed that a more glorious hand did not exist. No one was foolish enough to mention luck, but the surprises wore a deeply satisfied look that said much more than any open exaltation. And, and Mike, a few paragraphs ago, we were talking about how everybody's spirits were low, except for Naseby the dog. Well, things are reversed now. Despite the weather turning pretty miserable, the surprises the next day are unusually lively and cheerful in the gunnery exercises. Even, says the text, even downright snow would neither have chilled nor dampened their spirits. Excellent. Ooh, that is great. And I'll tell you, it turns out, surprise, surprise, to be just in time. So everybody is, you know, their spirits are up. They're, everybody's been doing great gunnery. And lo and behold, two sail of ships are spotted by the lookout. Jack and, and young Mr. Daniel, the new master's mate, you know, scooch straight up into the top. Daniel, who's younger and in better shape, gets there a little quicker and not breathing nearly as hard as Jack and quickly sees one or two white blurs before a low cloud hides them. Now, Joe, the lookout up there, says he believes it was a right man of war and a medium frigate 
maybe a merchantman, but that he believes they altered course and started to work to windward when he saw them. But he's pretty sure that the frigate heaved a white flag. He says, you know, maybe for Parley just before they disappeared. Mm. Hmm. Now, Jack, as we're going to find out later, reaches a conclusion, perhaps a conclusion that's a couple of steps too far ahead. He thinks it's a white flag that might indeed mean submission, an absence of, of hostile intent, in other words, or on the other hand, a ruse de guerre, you know, throwing out a white flag to say, I want to speak to you could be a means of getting close to obtain intelligence or to obtain tactical advantage because Jack Aubrey's thinking that the rest of the world thinks like Jack Aubrey. He's got no intention of presenting his squadron on the lee bow of a potential enemy, especially one that's busy with some kind of crafty ruse. So there's a tear in the low cloud. He sees these two ships in the moonlight, not under any press of sail. He sees again the white flag, but now he's steering a course that slowly, slowly, hopefully in a, in a stealthy way, is going to give his squadron the weather gauge by morning. And he's beginning to think about how the winds and the currents and the imperfections of the sailing performance of the Pomone might all influence his ability to position the squadron dead to windward by first light so that he can have the advantage. Now, stick a pin in the white flag. We're going to find out shortly that there are a couple of different possible explanations for this white flag. Um, Jack and Stephen could both have figured it out, Mike. Um, easy, easy with hindsight. But I've got to say, as I was reading this, I, I, I didn't spot what they ought to have spotted about this white flag. No, ne- neither did I. And I never even thought about it until you mentioned the possibility <laughs> later. And I thought, oh, gosh, of course. Yeah. Well, Jack summons William Reed, you know, on the wrinkle. And he says, you know, William, I want you to have the Pomone come within hail. And then he says, did you, did you see the two ships? And Reed says, yeah, he saw what looked like my, what might be two frigates, one wearing a white flag for Parley. So Reed, the same thing, I guess, you know, we're like, we'll come back to that. And Jack says, Parley be damned, William. Those wicked brutes are edging away to gain the weather gauge. Obviously we must do the same and the devil take the hindmost. Amen, sir. So be it, says Reed. <laughs> so we had a little, a little Royal Navy litany here on the deck of, of the surprise. Now, he tells Reed to bear away to windward after talking to Pomone and to see what he can learn of these ships and then report to him uh, at first light here. So I'm kind of thinking, man, we've already had one action in this book. We're, you know, we're early days here and we're about to hit another action. That's, yeah. yeah. That's unusual. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. And we're absolutely following Jack here. He's he's sure. The wicked brutes, he, he knows in his gut that this is some foe that's trying to outmaneuver him. And I've got to say, we find it very easy to go along with Jack. Jack checks his position on the charts and sees that he's got plenty of sea room to maneuver all the way up till noon the next day. He's worried, like we said a moment ago, about the Pomone's ability to keep up or... He's also worried about maybe losing surprise in the dark since he's not going to use lights that betray his position during the night. And a little echo of the famous Cochrane trick that was in Master and Commander, including in the Master and Commander movie. Uh, he puts Bondon and half a dozen shipmates on a well-provisioned boat veered astern to guide Pomone with a fisherman's light if she should stray. And l- later on, 
All of Jack's worries about the poor sailing performance of the Pomona have come true. Harding shows up, begs Jack's pardon. The Pomona's dropped far behind, and he says the cutter is in danger of towing under. This is because the surprise is really cracking on here. The crew around them are unhappy at the idea of reducing speed, but Jack looks for himself, sees that Harding is right, and he gives the orders to deaden the surprise's way. And uh, I'm glad that the crew had had their their, their good luck tanks topped up again because I think he would have had a lot of murmuring um, otherwise at the suggestion that they should slow down uh, in the context of a possible action. Right. Killick, meanwhile, comes up to tell Jack that supper is on the table. So, Mike, it's it's time to eat. Yeah. Well, as, as Jack comes into the cabin, Stephen is playing a tune on Jack's second best ocean going fiddle. And he says he, you know, he was at a Cayley once, you know, uh, gathering out in County Donegal, this kind of music and dancing, something that I really enjoyed on the, uh, the trip to Ireland recently. Yeah. And he said, you know, he remembers this tune, but there was, and the text says, a dying fall near the end that I cannot recapture. And Jack replies, you know, kind of as if telling Stephen not to worry, it will come to you in the middle of the night. And and I'm sitting here going, okay, I'm probably a little bit overly paranoid, but, you know, Diana died by a fall off a bridge. And I'm hearing Stephen saying, you know, there's this dying fall near the end that I cannot recapture. Oh, and gosh. Jack is saying, don't worry, it's coming to you. You know, it'll be coming to you in the middle of the night. I'm going, no, no, is this <laughs> um, it's foreshadowing? Is this O'Brien playing with us to ratchet up the tension? So, I, you know, I don't know. But at, at the end of the supper, uh, you know, Jack tells Stephen, you know, go ahead, turn in, get some sleep, um, because he hopes to find these skulking villains, as he says, you know, these two ships under their lee in the morning watch. So it's like, you know, you're going to have to wake up early, Stephen, because we're going to be going into battle early. So get some sleep now. And, and now now I'm thinking, OK, paranoia has overcome me because I'm thinking about Master and Commander movie. And, you know, this I... ship that always shows up, this ghost ship finds you in the fog out of nowhere. I'm thinking, oh, gosh, no, no, is that going to happen? So I, I'll tell you, Ian, I'm, I'm a little overcome here. Perhaps I'm a little wound too tight. Maybe, maybe a little break is in order before we keep going here. Absolutely. Let's go and gather our composure and we'll be right back after a short message. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. We hope you've all had a chance to calm down a little. We have to see then whether the sense of calm has prevailed on board the surprise. We rejoin the story the next morning, Sunday morning, 7 a.m., and Stephen is awakened by gunfire. <gasps> okay, may maybe action is happening already. There's swabbing, though, swabbing overhead. There are no excited cries. There's been no beating to quarters, so this gunfire is kind of out of context. Stephen's having a hard time waking up and a hard time getting oriented as to what's going on. He's been busy having a vivid dream in color. And interestingly, Mike, O'Brien emphasizes that the dream was in color. <laughs> um, we think that maybe a, a, a colorful dream might be said to mean that it's a positive dream, a dream about unfulfilled desires, repressed emotions, or needs not yet being met. Well, let's find out what the dream is about. Apparently, in this 
color dream, he's wiring together a small primate skeleton with none other than Christine Wood directing or performing the more delicate movements. So, Dr. Shank, what do you think Dr. Freud would say about this? I think that's the question here. You know, it's vivid and it's in color and it's, you know, yeah, I've got to admit, you know, sometimes, as Dr. Freud said, a cigar is just a cigar. But this, I I don't know. Well, Stephen realizes that the cannon fire is not an engagement, but what he calls in the text says, a perfectly dispassionate return to a salute. And now I'm thinking, wait a minute, this right, you know, layered right on top of this dream thing. So is that dispassionate in contrast to the passionate dream? (sighs) Well, a young gentleman runs in saying the captain desires the doctor to come on board on deck in uniform, emphasizing the in uniform. Killick runs in, says, you know, he has direct orders from the captain to attend to the doctor. And Killick says, not a moment to spare, the devil to pay and no pitch hot. And he runs the little boy out with a zeal, the text says, to be equaled only by his desire for forgiveness. So he has the doctor washed, shaved, and dressed in regulation garments while kind of the text is hissing at him the whole time, like somebody trying to soothe a restless horse. Stephen keeps asking him these questions, but um, he's he's not answering. But he then, the text says, you know, he kind of pushes Stephen up to the deck with the intensity that compelled respect. So, um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating kind of scene going on here as Stephen is still trying to sort of get his wits about him. He's still deep in this dream here. It is. And I remember reading this for the first time and I'm reading this on this reread as well. I was a bit like Stephen. I'm going, hold on a second. We have gunfire, but it's probably not on action. And Killick is fussing and Stephen's still in his dream. It's a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a jumble. And I can't remember quite what's meant to be happening next. So I'm super attentive as O'Brien kindly reveals to us what's actually happening. Jack greets Stephen up on deck and points out the glorious sight of a proud French frigate and its slightly more shabby 22-gun corvette escort with a captain's barge rowing across. And Mike, this is a way in which we've seldom encountered a French ship before. You know, with, For sure. <laughs> within a few cables lengths and the barge pulling across. Huh. Stephen is still partly in his dream, doesn't understand the explanation that's offered by Jack. And Jack says, well, don't you recognize the man who's coming to breakfast, the person in the barge? And he hands Stephen his glass. And Stephen says, ah, the happy, familiar face of Captain Christy Pallier, their captor, a little before the Algeciras action in 1801, and then their host in Toulon during the brief peace that followed. How happy I am to see him he cried. And so are we, Mike. I, I, we haven't had any proper Christy Pallier time since we're way back in post-captain and before. So this is this is quite the throwback here. It's, it's a really, really happy encounter. Jack tells Stephen that Christy Pallier and his officers had declared for the king at once. They had been refitting, but some of the sea officers up and down the coast were coming out for Napoleon. So Christy Pallier had left his berth early in the morning hoping to head for Malta, but having found that the winds were the wrong way, he'd come by Messina and had picked up his cousin, 
commanding that 22-gun corvette along the way. Here we get the, the great meeting, and there's just big, big smile on my face here, Mike. The French barge hooks on. Captain Christy Pallier is piped aboard in style. Again, we haven't often had that honour bestowed on a French officer in these books. They all greet each other, and Jack introduces the captain to Harding. Captain Christy Pallier of His Most Christian Majesty's Frigate, Caroline. Now, there's a sentence he never thought we'd hear anytime soon. Right. And the introductions are made, and it's hospitality time. Over breakfast, Christy Pallier congratulates Jack Aubrey on his broad pennant, saying he's never saluted one with half as much pleasure in his life. And Jack is very glad to have Christy Pallier there as a friend and as an ally, and says that Admiral Fanshawe, who is very, very short-shipped, will be glad to have him in Mahon to convey some ships to the Channel. So not only have we got the social connection between Jack and Christine Pallier restored, they're now more or less on the same side, more or less taking orders from the same Admiral. It's a very, very striking reversal. Yeah, this is this is so exciting for me. It's kind of you know, the greatest hits, some of our folks that we've loved in the past kind of coming back in here. You know, it made me feel a little bit kind of like sometimes those long series that you watch getting into the final seasons and bringing back characters from early on. And you're going, oh, yay. So, I, you know, let's hope, I, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that, uh, well, we'll come back to that as we finish the 100 days here. But <laughs> Jack says his orders take him to the Adriatic after he stops in Malta for the latest intelligence. And he hopes to strengthen the royalists like Christy Pallier and the French ships there and destroy the Bonapartists and privateers. He asks if it would be indiscreet to ask him about the shipyards along the coast. So Jack is saying, "Okay, we're allies, but I realize, you know, we're kind of still two different countries. You know, would that be proper for me to ask you about? And Christophe Pellier says, yeah, he's happy to tell Jack all that he knows. But he says it's extremely complicated. There are doubtful loyalties, concealed motives and all kinds of blunders in Paris. He says he thinks he can best recall it all if he's talking with Jack and they're looking at Jack's chart table in his mm. cabin. So, you know, and, and I think Jack takes this at face value, but Stephen Matron, the intelligence agent, here's a little bit more. <laughs> Stephen realizes that actually that we're still in need of discretion here. And Mike, I remember sort of stopping and thinking twice about this, like, Oh, hang on. Christy Pallier hasn't met Stephen much since the time of post-captain. And back then, Stephen's identity as an intelligence agent was only just emerging. And there's no reason why anybody on the French side, uh, unless they'd been very close to the events in the prison at the end of Surgeon's Mate, why anybody who's on the French side would think of Stephen as an agent. And he still has that kind of desire to protect his secret identity here. So... Stephen realizes that Christy Pallier himself is being a bit discreet and not wanting to mention intelligence matters in general conversation. This is a, a benefit for Stephen as well to be able to treat these two things separately. So he excuses himself. Jack says, I'll see you in the sick bay at the end of divisions. And meanwhile, he says he's going to be happy to show Captain Christy Pallier the divisions ceremony. And this is going to be a great moment for academic study, says Christy Pallier. I'm going to bring my secretary, Richard since Richard is writing a comparative study of the of the doings and the ceremonies of different uh, navies, he thinks this is going to be a great moment. Dr. Maturin will join them, 
since the secretary Richard only speaks French and Latin and not English. And Mike, I, I, I can hear some mistranslations coming in our, right, in our right. near future here. <laughs> well, the entire crew is turned out for divisions as usual. And Jack inspects the Marines first, kind of out of the goodness of his heart, so they can get out of their hot dress uniforms. And Stephen describes everything to Richard as they, as they go along. And Richard, you know, kind of looking at all this pomp and circumstance, and I guess particularly the Marines there, ask if anybody's about to be flogged. And he's relieved hmm. to learn that, no, no, there's no floggings at divisions because he says he finds that spectacle extremely painful. So, you know, Richard and Stephen are a little like-minded here, I think, and uh, as, as well as with Jack. Stephen knows everyone on the ship and, you know, he, he knows all their names. He knows everybody that he's treated, what he's treated them for. And he calls them all by name. But it, he then jokes with the one man whose name doesn't come to mind immediately. And, and the sailor knows that, tells Stephen who he is and thanks him for his bolus. And, you know, and, and Stephen's saying, you know what, you know, you, you might have to prescribe something for me from my memory here. And Richard asks if all this familiarity is typical in the service. And Stephen says, well, only in a ship's company that's that's been together for a long time. And Richard starts to say, well, in a Russian ship. And then he checks himself, realizing, okay, you know, I shouldn't, <laughs> you know, we I shouldn't be speaking ill of our allies. And, you know, uh, you know I, I guess somebody who's doing a comparative study wouldn't necessarily, you know, everybody's going to be a little more open if he realizes that he's not going to be telling everybody else about this. So well, the next group of men that they come up to, seeing that the Commodore and, and Christy Pallier have gotten much further ahead, you know, Stephen's asking this one man how you do, and the guy is hesitating, and his, his mates around him say, well, how he does is he's gotten another young woman with child again, and they're all kind of laughing. And I think Richard is still kind of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is a little bit different kind of thing. But we'll come back to this here. Uh, this is Stephen looking a little bit different in company than we've seen him on this cruise so far, which, which I love. You know, Stephen is having a fun time. All of the sailors are talking to him. So you know, we'll come back to that. At the end of Divisions, Jack skips the sermon, has everyone sing the Old Hundredth, and reads the Articles of War. So these, um, Richard, the French observer, is going to get the, the very pared-back, strictly naval, non-ecclesiastical version of the ceremony for divisions and Articles of War. As Jack reads them aloud, Stephen reflects on the unusually happy morning that he's having and all the evident goodwill that now surrounds him as he walks the decks. And he contrasts that with how things were feeling just maybe just a day or two before. Up until now, he says, he's rarely seen many of these shipmates, and the ones he had come into contact with had been grave and reserved and would only speak to him about the matter in hand, unwilling to speak at length, even embarrassed, I think, due to the bereavement. No open expression of sympathy, still less of condolence, until the horn was broken, when Bondon and Joe Place and a few others he had known for a great while said, it was a cruel, hard thing. They were very sorry for his trouble. So it's it's funny. They now that the misfortune that's come his way is a more kind of prosaic everyday one, they feel okay about offering him sympathy, and he's happy with that. Um, he's happy that people are not reserved around him, and it makes you wonder, Mike, whether this was sort of an expressed wish for Patrick O'Brien that on on the one hand he's a very reserved person and wouldn't want people to sort of break in on on his grief. 
But on the other hand, he would have quite liked one or two more expressions of sympathy and condolence. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I couldn't help but wonder the the exact same thing here. I thought, right. wow, this is yeah. this is, and I, and I found it moving on both their behalves. Yeah, <laughs> even yeah, definitely. I don't love and O'Brien, who who I don't know well, would love to know more. But it's like, ah, yeah, really nice. Well, Stephen decides that day because he's with Richard. He's going to dine in the gun room, and and Richard will be his guest. And Stephen's sense of well being continues. And then, you know, kind of as we're talking there, Ian, about, you know, how's O'Brien feeling? Is this, you know, is he portraying that in Stephen? You know, Stephen now seems really happy, but O'Brien writes in the text here, black desolation underlay it as he knew perfectly well, but the two could coexist in the same being. And so I thought, wow. Here it is. What a, what a great way to say this. This is Stephen thinking about this. It says, some part of the gunroom's friendliness would certainly have been caused by the presence of his guest, part of his happiness to the fact that he was speaking French most of the time, a language in which he had been wildly happy, amorous, and even politically enthusiastic when he was a student in Paris, and part to the excellence of the dinner. But there remained an overplus that he had to attribute to his return to what was, after these many years, his own village, his own ship's company, that complex entity so much more easily sensed than described, part of his natural habitat. And boy, this just this just knocked me out. I thought, wow, you know, is this is this what really constitutes family for Stephen? This this village, his own, literally his own. He owns the ship, his company, and both the people and the surprise herself, his natural habitat, as as this natural philosopher here kind of, you know, I'm, I'm just like. This really, this is one of those ones that, you know, I, th- I think I may have to put on my wall or something. I just love Isn't this. It Isn't it great? Yeah. And I'm sure it's not uh, an accident that it's juxtaposed with him reflecting on people's attitude to him and his loss. I wonder if there's a little bit here of Patrick O'Brien reflecting on the fact that the, the community around him where he and Mary had lived were his family. And once they got to be kind of back connected to him, he was able to feel that, uh, sense it rather than describe it. Is his own natural yeah. habitat, the habitat around Collier that uh, that he'd become used to. So it's a, it's a really really great moment. <sighs> After this, alone with Stephen, as Jack and Christy Pallier are talking away in English, Richard in French says to Stephen that he doesn't want to criticize the Royal Navy's food. He says it was an excellent dinner, remarkably good wine. But even so, he asks, what was that ponderous mass, glutinous and yet crumbling, enveloped in the sweet sauce that came at the end? Stephen says, why, that was Plum Duff, a great favourite in the service. Well, I am sure it is very good if you're used to it, but I fear that such very heavy cooking does not suit my digestion, delicate from childhood. Frankly, sir, I think that I may die. <laughs> Oh, bless him. Now, this gives me a little bit of flashback to Stephen and Jack and Duhamel uh, in the surgeon's mate on the way to Paris eating those, was it uh, crayfish or langoustine or something and uh, and being sick afterwards. So here's a little bit of payback, uh, a, a Frenchman feeling uh, feeling the effect on his digestion of heavy English cooking. 
and Stephen examines him straight away and suggests uh, a, a comfortable vomit. Now, and, and by the way, if it's good for dogs, it must be good for people as well, right? And he's <laughs> he's he's one for one with his uh, <laughs> with his dog emesis, so he's probably got some made up already, ready to go. This this is rejected with a shudder by Richard, who is clearly feeling as sick as a dog, but not ready to be treated like a dog. And Stephen helps him out even so with a moderate glass of brandy, and that helps somewhat. They play cards, they drink coffee, and they wait for the conversation between the two captains to come to an end. Now, after the Frenchmen have all left, gone back to their ship, Jack asks for a word with Stephen. And he says how much he wishes Stephen had been with the two of them, you know, that the three of them had cut, sort of gone through this briefing from Christy Pallier. And Stephen says, well, it would have never done. Now, Jack says, well, if for nothing else, it would have been helpful to have somebody take notes. He says it's extremely complicated. They're good men on both sides. You know, people who are waiting to see which way the cat jumps, you know, not wanting to commit until the winner is going to be more obvious or wanting to protect themselves, you know, in, in either event, you know, no matter who wins, they, you know, they don't want to get uh, condemned here. And he says, now some of them just want to go privateering. They don't care for the king or Napoleon. They're just out to make them, you know, make their own money here. And he said, but, you know, according to Christy Paillet, most of them think Boney will win. No. Uh, he says that Christy, as he calls him now, was struck by the utter confusion in Paris. You know, Christy Paillet went there. He'd sworn all his oaths in all the proper places in the Admiralty. And he was complaining about the delay in paying for the Caroline's repairs. And, you know, afterwards he attended a party and he saw a number of people wearing high ranking naval uniforms, people he had never seen before in life. So the Navy has clearly changed a lot. He said there was this atmosphere of caution, jockeying for position, and a number of service acquaintances ignored him until the king spoke to him kindly and asked for Monsieur Lachois to receive him that day. And everyone's behavior then all of a sudden took a complete change towards Christie. But that change did not reach the ministry, where he had to go through the same thing all over again, waiting for days, shuffled to an admiral who Christie had once served on under, and they had a mutual dislike for one another. And this admiral, Christy knows, half-brother and cousin, had both been in communication with Napoleon on Elba. Uh, and this admiral, you know, sends Christy back to his ship with a reprimand for coming to Paris and no help on his ship's refitting. And Ian, I don't know about you, when, when I heard the name of this monsieur, I was like, no, 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 that's not, is it? Is it? No, that's right. I'm taking straight back to Treason's Harbor. The André Lesueur there, I think... Um, who had enlisted Laura Fielding and who'd been involved in all of that kind of intriguing against Stephen and against our our side. Now, this is O'Brien again playing a, not fast and loose, but being being liberal in his use of his favourite surnames. There was a lessurer who was head of the Bourbon Marine Ministry, so it, it's natural that we all get a bit of a chill when we get lessurer's name there for us. But actually, there was a real person called lessurer, not a spy master, just the person in the civil service looking after the French Navy. Now, we've had all of this information passed on verbally, firsthand, from Christy Pallier to Jack, and he's now worried that he'll forget of half of what he's heard. So Jack takes Stephen over to the chart table to go through it. Nice little moment of exposition here. I love it. 
They start looking at the shipyard where the Caroline had been being repaired and refitted. They work their way across the map, sharing the shipyards and ships being built and their different conditions. The Allegiance, including one ship in Spalato, which is split these days in Croatia, that was ready to surrender to the king's allies if they appear in face-saving force. Some yards, on the other hand, appear to have stopped work for want of funds and materials, which means that the intelligence mission we talked about last chapter is paying off. And Christie had been worried about the many people sitting on the fence and the amount of damage that they could do if things would turn out to look a little better for Bonaparte. He says they could also wreak havoc on supplies for the Valletta yard in Malta, stopping everything coming down from the Dalmatian shore. So th- th- this is not an easy situation. I'll, I'll just briefly say here, Mike, I don't know of any of this happening for real in the, in the real world 100 days, but all of these names are the names of real places. Some, some of them are the old names like Spalato and Split, but these are all the names of real places on the Adriatic coast. And you can look them up and you can see roughly where he's talking about. Yeah, I you know always I you know I I thank goodness for Tom Horn and the Patrick O'Brien mapping project right. you know, on Canada.net to take me to these things, but uh, I I do find that when I'm trying to do my own research, of course, as you say, you know there are places in modern day, but with very different names sometimes yeah. <laughs> in the local languages. So, you know, O'Brien has been real places with the actual names at the time, which is fabulous here. Jack says that Christie was even more concerned with some kind of plot he'd heard at second or third hand, but neither he nor his most trustworthy informant thoroughly understands what's going on. Something about a seasoned force of mercenaries being sent forth to prevent Austrian and Russian armies uniting and giving Napoleon time to bring up his reserves to be in a strong position for battle. And he says that's why Christie really left immediately. He left most of his water, half his cable still on shore. And Stephen tells Jack he's sure Christie is right. And so is the Admiralty. And that's why they've sent Jacob, who speaks all the language of these parts, to work with Stephen to put a stop with that. Stephen says, you know, Here's what we need to do. Jack, you need to put Jacob aboard the Ringle so he can go to Catali, speak to Sian Bay, his vizier, the Orthodox and French bishops, and all our private connections as quickly as possible, learn all he can, and return just as quickly as the surprise, if Stephen may suggest, makes its way up the Dalmatian coast. So Stephen is kicking the intelligence mission into full gear, basically taking over the naval mission here. And and I, I love this moment. Yeah, it's great. Not, not only because there's not a moment to lose, and also because we were able to play on our old connections with the folks from Ionian Mission and Treason's Harbour. It's really great. So Jack gazes at Stephen, nods, and tells him to give Jacob his orders while he summons the Ringle. And the Ringle, this fast-moving tender, sails over. William Reed in command of the Ringle, it says came up at the side, his hook gleaming, and with something of the look of a keen, intelligent dog that believes it may have heard someone taking down a fowling piece. It's a really great line. Love we've that. Had, <laughs> we've had a dog personified as a person, and now we've had a person personified as the dog, and we, we love them both. Jack tells Reed to take Dr. Jacob to Kutali, our old stamping ground from the Ionian mission, tells him about the port, tells him where to anchor, and then to proceed to Spalato with all speed as soon as Dr. Jacob should be back on board. Jacob is hurried aboard the Ringle after a quick briefing from Stephen, takes some letters to Stephen and to Jack's friends in Kutali, and tells Jacob, 
The whole essence is to learn whether the Brotherhood's messages have been sent, and if so, whether they can still be intercepted. Money, he says, is of no consequence whatsoever. And he might as well have said, but he didn't say, there's not a moment to lose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, as Jack suspected, the Ringle far outsails the surprise, but not actually as much as he originally expected because the captain on the Pomone has got a better feel for his ship, brought her by the stern. And as the squadron sails along the Adriatic, a boat approaches the surprise, pointing to this huge catch, a single fish covering the whole bottom of the boat that would feed all 200 of the surprises. And this guy is hollering out, cheap, cheap, very cheap. Jack has the cook go aboard, check the fish for freshness, and set a fair price. The cook looks up from the boat and says the fish is dead, fresh, still warm. Well, this catches Stephen's attention, who says, are you speaking figuratively? The cook doesn't understand. Stephen clarifies, do you mean warm, warm? You know, as one would say, a rabbit was so fresh killed that it was still warm. And, and the cook's looking a little anxious, but doesn't reply. Stephen scrambles down, trips over the Zebex gunnel, falls on his knees in the tunny's blood. And the cook says, oh, my gosh, those stains are never going to come out, doctor. So, you, you know, you might as well stick your hand in the place where they gaffed and where all this blood is flowing from. Stephen does. And he realizes that the blood is actually warm. He shakes the cook's hand, I'm sure with his bloody hand. And he says, it's against nature. I'm amazed, amazed and delighted. So I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, Brian, come on now. So you've got Stephen falling down on a foreign ship covered in blood. You've just told us he's becoming happier. You've given him a scientific discovery, but he's fallen down covered in blood. Are you playing with us, O'Brien? <laughs> symbols piled on symbols, piled on metaphors. I love it. Right. Well, <laughs> um, the, the whole ship's company then gets to dine on this magnificent fish, this, this tunny. Uh, Stephen can scarcely remember a more agreeable day. He's writing up his notes. He talks about having passed the highland of Castelnovo, which is in Macedonia, sees a pair of spotted eagles, almost exactly, he says, where I saw my first. And of course, he's talking about back in the Ionian mission, chapter 11, he had told... Jack about this discovery of seeing these two spotted eagles and made this famous joke about how they come from a Dalmatia which was famous for its spotted dogs. And Jack, it says, laughed until the tears came into his eyes. In a Dalmatian inn, he had said, by way of pudding, you could call for spotted dick, give pieces of it to a spotted dog and throw the remains to the spotted eagles. So that's a nice little flashback for those of us who remember that little piece in the Ionian mission. Even though O'Brien can't always keep his name straight and assuming that it isn't intentional um he can still help us out mike with some great uh echoes from the past of the canon here that's for sure well lieutenant Hule is reported alongside in the cutter and and jack follows a midshipman greets Hule, looking down at the cutter saying well no one's ever going to connect this you know disguised filthy cutter to the royal navy and jack is sending him to Ragusa Vecchio to do some reconnaissance, saying that the changing wind should bring them back without rowing. And close to dawn, Jack is proved right. The cutter comes, you know, kind of flying around the point, making five knots. Huell comes aboard, joining the Commodore and Stephen for breakfast. He reports that, yes, there, you know, there was a 32-gun frigate ready for sea, lying close up to the ruined castle. This is just as Christie had told Jack. He says, but... 
There's also an arm palaka and an arm palaka settee, both Algerines. And that's, we remember, who Christie said had paid for the building of this frigate here. Huell didn't want to give the mission away by using his glass too much. And he said the Palakas had their ports closed and they had sailcloth and cordage hanging over the side. But he guessed there were 12 guns on one and perhaps eight on the other, likely nine pounders. And they continue talking. So here's Jack Aubrey. Sure batteries, I dare say. Jack was not good at dissembling. Stephen noticed the artificial lightness of his tone, but gazed steadily at the coffee in his coffee cup. Yes, sir. One at each end of the mole. I did not like to be too busy with my glass, but I thought I could make out six emplacements in each. I could not speak to the nature of the guns. No, of course not. A pause. Mr. Hewell, pray help yourself to bacon. It stands at your right hand. The covered dish. End of chapter four. <laughs> Whoa. So my, this has been a funny chapter. We've got this sometimes puzzling, sometimes disorienting swing from the darkness of where Stephen had been in the first few chapters to him realizing that there's some lightness and he's surprised and catches himself out and having, having a good day. And we're surprised and caught out by the arrival of Christy Pallier. I should have said, by the way, that the, the reason the white flag was, was an obscure thing that they could have spotted is, of course, that the, the Bourbon flag, the, the new standard of the French Royalist Navy, is white. white. So we've, we've had all these things being revealed to us. We've had threatening ships on the horizon revealed to be friends. We've had a potential duel with Hobden revealed to be an episode where everybody's just kind of figured things out. We've, we've had the dog... You know, going from being a being a friend to being a villain to being a friend again. It's been so so much change and so much transition in the chapter. We we have, Ian. And you know, it's been fascinating, as I say, all this potential tension heightened by ill omens, signs yeah. of bad luck. And and you know, it all kind of turns out good. We thought we had an action, but we don't. Now it looks like we have the chance to have a real action, perhaps to see what Pomone is like under its new captain in a real battle yeah huh. we also get a chance to see as as days go by what's Stephen going to be like how's he going to get from under the weight of his grief how is he going to get uh get back into his life in, the, in this new this new village this new family that he finds himself in again and what about those dreams of Christine? What about all the symbolism and the breaking of the horn and the hand of glory? You really do have to wonder. Well, we know for sure the intelligence mission and the naval mission have certainly come to be one now, or a lot, a lot closer to it. You know, I think uh, Jack, you know, I love how Jack realizes, oh my gosh, I just got all this intelligence and Stephen's known it all along. And and their you know their kind of mutual respect for one another. Jack's immediate response to Stephen's orders, um, you know, bringing this all together. And and like you, you know, I'm I'm a little kind of wondering what to make of O'Brien bringing Christine Wood on the scene so quickly after Diana's death. Right. And, you know, c- continues to give us reminders of her and and Stephen's attachment to her, deepening attachment in almost every chapter here. Yeah. Now, it, it sort of raises a little smile for us, and it's really nice to have a little little thought of something potentially nice, something potentially pleasant for Stephen coming up in the future. Um, meanwhile, we're still in this turbulent present day, this real-world present day of the 100 days. We don't know whether this story about mercenaries and about you know plots and money, whether that's real, but it's going to be really interesting to see 
how our story plays out here. Maybe, as you say, some successful actions coming up for Jack Aubrey. Maybe his chance to command a squadron with his broad pennant flying and not be undercut by a superior, like way back in the Mauritius command. Well, Mike, we could see a lot of different directions that we're moving in, but this is only chapter four and it's Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, and and Patrick O'Brien... I don't think ever goes just straightforward. So what do you say, Ian, next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, I should like that of all things. Introduces the captain to Harding. Captain Kristen. <laughs> captain. <laughs> okay. Top set back in. Captain Christy Pallier of His Most Christian Majesty's Frigate.